name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Hope you're in Bibles, if you will. Turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 23. Happy Easter. He is risen. So glad you're with us. Um, I should say, if you don't have a Bible, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. And really, though, uh, happy Easter. Uh, I, I just want to take a moment as we uh, adjust to this Easter and think with you through some of the big things that are going on. How do we take the scripture, the, the magnificent meaning behind Easter and have these things apply to what's going on in our world? There's big things to figure out and there's lots of sides to the Easter uh, topic, the Easter holiday, the Easter meaning that I want us to kind of deal with. If you're like me, it doesn't feel like Easter. We've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. It means uh, it, it maybe feels even more so that way today. You may have woken up and done some of your normal Easter stuff, but here we are. It's Easter Sunday and you're sitting in your living room and I'm talking to a camera. It's Easter Sunday and, and all of the family stuff that normally fills up an Easter Sunday uh, isn't going to happen. Uh, my, my parents, my kids' grandparents were giving gifts and then watching through a, a screen on the front porch as the kids open up their Easter baskets. It's not normal. It's not how it usually feels. And so, while we usually preach about specifically just the resurrection on Easter, today we're going to kind of go a little bit of a different way. I want to just try and address the kind of common emotional landscape that a lot of us are feeling and going through. And the way that I'm going to assess that common landscape is not just by having my own heart and, and the calls and conversations I've had with you as evidence, but also looking at the advertising that's going on right now. If you're like me, you're getting a deluge of emails from companies telling you how they're dealing with the COVID crisis. I didn't know so many companies had my email. Fortunately, though, the people who sold me their tires, sold me my tires, are telling me how they're dealing with COVID. I'm getting uh, a repetitive ad, and this maybe is the ad that helps me understand most what the kind of common theme is for a lot of these. I'm getting a very repetitive ad on Hulu for Lexus. So we're all living in this world where we're very concerned about the, the companies knowing lots and lots about us. And you think, oh, well, at least I'll get targeted marketing. Well, Hulu has no idea who we are. Uh, we keep getting ads for Lexuses. I don't know how well you know me. I'm not in the market uh, for a Lexus. We keep getting ads for Lexuses. We got one ad that was just entirely in Spanish. And it would just keep replaying this Spanish ad. My family doesn't speak Spanish. But uh, as we watch this Lexus ad, and we don't have a choice, it's getting hammered into us, the, the theme of the ad, or the tone of the ad, is not just we have great cars. What they say in the ad over and over again is that they're not necessarily in the car business, they're in the people business. And that they're here for you, they're going to care for you in this time of crisis. And it's a very, like, uh, I don't know, effective ad. Again, I'm not in the market, but if I was, boy, I would be happy to know that Lexus cared so much about me personally. And you kind of watch it, but there's this moment, and maybe it's because I've seen the ad 10 times consecutively, but where it starts to sound not just cheesy, but totally insincere. I mean, you listen to it and you're thinking to yourself, I mean, these people are not like saints who sat around in the luxury division of Toyota and said like, Oh, how can we help the poor? How can we start orphanages? I don't know. Maybe we can do a hospital for people that can't pay. 
No, we're just going to have to make luxury cars. That's how we're really going to serve the world. And then they're coming to us now in this time of panic and saying, like, it's okay, guys. We'll keep selling you luxury cars and maybe defer payments for 90 days. Like, it doesn't have the same pull or effect, but they're trying to say what we all want to hear right now, which is that somebody cares. Somebody has your back. Somebody has the ability to help you and the willingness to help you through all this. And that's a common message. It's a common drum that's being beat across our culture. Everybody's trying to let us know that they care, that they have some ability to help you, and they definitely have a willingness to help you. And it can be insincere. I mean, forgive me, good people at Lexus. It can be insincere, or it can be extremely sincere. But it's the message that we're all trying to find. And so as I look through the scripture and as I see the passages around this Easter text, yes, they're the passages about the resurrection. And we could go there. We could celebrate with the women who came first to the tomb and saw that it was empty. We could celebrate with Peter and John having a foot race to the empty tomb to see that the Savior that they had buried was now alive. We could do that. And that's the theme. That's the cloud cover over all of this. But what I want to do instead is just take one chapter back. So if you've already flipped to Luke chapter 23, you'll see that there's nothing in there about the resurrection. This is more about the crucifixion. And that's because the tone of this text and the meaning behind this text, I think, meets us. And it gives us a very clear picture of the Christian answer to, does Jesus care about us? Does he have the ability to help us? Does he have the willingness to help us? So, like I say, maybe a little unorthodox, but let's go there together. Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in uh, in verse 39 and work our way down. Read with me. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to that thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, again, I would love to preach the passage about the road to Emmaus. I'd love to preach the passage about the celebration and the lunch where they're all eating together and Jesus comes in and makes fun of Thomas. Thomas has to put his hands in Jesus' holes or in his side. But instead, we're going to listen to the gallows conversation from three men creaking on crosses as they expire. The reason that I want us to do this is because there's an intense meaning here. There's a very specific and very clear picture of God's care for us and an application for how we receive or don't receive that care. 
So in this picture, let's go. Let's understand really clearly. The setting for this picture is Jesus on a cross. A cross was an execution instrument by the Roman government. It was used as a way to deter people, not just to kill people. There were other more efficient ways to do that, but to deter people. It was a very public means of execution in order to really excrue, crew, that word comes from crucifixion, excruciatingly, painfully hurt the people who had in some way incited the wrath of the Roman government. Jesus fits into that category, sort of, because the Jewish leadership who brought him to Pontius Pilate said he claims to be a king. He is, in some way, inciting rebellion against Caesar, in some way speaking better than they know. On Jesus' cross, they have his, his offense listed. Because again, the whole point was for people to walk by, see you on the cross, see what you did, and underline in their head very effectively, I don't want to do that. And on Jesus it said, King of the Jews. Not, he said King of the Jews, but Pilate had it written, King of the Jews. Now, on either side of Jesus are two other thieves. These are just people who are on the docket to be executed, on the docket to be executed in that way. So this conversation is happening as men who have just been sentenced to die, have had Jesus, in, in Jesus' case in particular, been flogged, and then carry their crosses up onto a hill. They're nailed bodily to a wooden cross, gigantic wooden cross, that's then slated down into the ground. And in order to speak, they have to push up against the nails in order to breathe a little bit to be able to speak to one another. Because the way that crucifixion killed you was through suffocation. It was intended to be a lengthy, shameful, you're naked, you're hung up there in front of everybody, painful, agonizing way to die. We're zoomed in for this passage on the conversation between Jesus and the other two men who are being killed next to him. The Son of Man and the Son of God being hung on a tree. Now, here's what they do. They go back and forth. This first, um, this first thief begins to rail at Jesus. He begins to scream at Jesus. Hey, if you're one of the Christ, if you are, are you not the Christ... Save yourself and save us. He's giving to Jesus his version of a prayer, his version of a plea, which is, hey, if you're really the Christ, if you're who you say you are and who all these people are saying you are, I don't know and I don't care, but if you are, turn it on, man. Like, activate the powers. Say the magic words. Get yourself off the cross and bring me with you. He's making a prayer. He's making a plea to Jesus. Because remember, this crucifixion moment is not a pleasant moment. Have you ever seen some of the Monty Python stuff? They're all whistling and clapping from crosses. That wasn't this. And this guy wants down. And his only hope of getting down in this moment, he's grasping for straws. Anybody can help him possibly. And he's watching as all the Jewish leadership is walking by and they're reviling Jesus and talking about how he said he was the Christ. Now he said he was the Son of God. Save yourself. And they're only saying that making fun. But this guy in this moment makes a plea towards Jesus and says, I don't know and I don't care, but if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Whatever it takes, Jesus, I'm in a pinch. Maybe you can help me. Now, we are also being squeezed now. 
And when we're being squeezed, just like this guy's getting squeezed, we're having a similar reaction. A lot of people are actually turning to prayer presently. Now, there's some cool studies that are being done on this, but Google is actually getting the word prayer Googled at an amazing rate. And that rate doubles by every 80,000 confirmed COVID cases, meaning that as things get worse and worse or as this pandemic escalates at the same rate and then double, we watch the word prayer getting Googled because people are trying to turn to God or trying to learn about turning to God. You get the idea that they're trying to get like a rusty muscle moving again. They're trying to get, um, yesterday I tried to get my lawnmower going again, and it was a lot of pulls to get that thing going. It was a rusty piece of equipment that had not seen a lot of use, and you're trying to figure out how do you get this thing going. Let's, let's maybe get God involved, because everything else seems to be failing us. And I can't read the hearts of the people that have Googled that word. It's just a word put into a search engine, but... You have to wonder how many of those prayers are like the prayers of this man. You feel yourself pinched. You feel things that were either comfort or security for you removed. And so you start grasping at straws. Payment protection plan, you went through that. You're excited about maybe the stimulus package. But is it going to be enough? Might as well pray. So we cry out to Jesus and say, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you are, but maybe you can help me too. And yet, I don't think that in particular is the right answer. Yes, prayer is, but going to prayer as just a last means or a last resort, using prayer as some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, a bell that you ring in the hopes that some kind of magic process will take place, We need to go deeper and we need to go further. Because if all you're asking is for God to make things the way that they were, I think that's rather short-sighted. Yes, it's possible. He could make things as they were, but if he does, something is still coming for you. I told you, this is a weird Easter sermon. Something is still going to happen. What you need is a a bigger hope. I'm asking you to see prayer as bigger, not smaller. So what the first thief does. He doesn't really care who God is or what God is or who Jesus is, who he says he is or who he really is, as long as he will maybe somehow help out this guy. So let's go now to the second thief, because the second thief responds to Jesus, and he says in verse 40, he rebukes that other thief and says, do you not fear God Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says to that thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let's break this down. The short speech that this guy gives in a rebuke to the other guy and then as a sort of a prayer to Jesus, he begins by saying, hey man, do you not fear God? Because remember, this other thief has been reviling Jesus. He says, hey, you don't, do you not fear God? There is something about this situation which is a just punishment. That we should respect God's prerogative to allow. 
This is, again, where things get a little bit tricky, because whenever you preach a text and you're thinking about a text, you're looking at it and you're saying, especially these stories, you're saying, okay, who am I in this story? How is this story supposed to land to me? Well, you're not Jesus in this story, so who are we? This guy is saying what is, is a little bit of a difficult piece to maybe swallow, but it's a necessary piece to swallow. It's the reason why Christianity is symbolized by the cross, because in the cross you get this perfect expression of sin and sacrifice meeting God's forgiveness and holiness. They come together in this seamless way at the cross. But the cross and all of its brutality is showing us our sin. COVID and all the other tragedies and difficulties in this world, I'm not saying are directly related to your activity, directly related to your sin, as though one of you, in the sound of my voice, uh, who's watching this online maybe, that one of you is the reason this is happening. Of course we're not saying that. We preached a whole series on that. It was our series on Job. You can go listen to it. It's not saying that the evil that happens to you is because of something specific you did. And yet... The Bible is very clear that the things that happen to us in this world are a result of our rebellion with a capital R. And that if you are listening to what we're saying and you're saying to yourself, well, that's not me, I'm perfect. Well, congratulations. Now, Jesus didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. So I'm not talking to you and I'm, I'm excited that you're here. I'm not sure why you're here. But maybe you're somebody who says, no, 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 I don't think I'm perfect, but I don't also, I don't believe in God. Oh my gosh, I'm thrilled that you're listening to this. But can I say to you, if in that worldview, death is something that's natural, is your emotional landscape, as you're looking at all this tragedy, responding as though it's natural? In other words, does it feel natural? Oh man, no it doesn't. We rebel against it. We hate it. It doesn't seem like how things are supposed to be. The scripture says, no, it's not how things are supposed to be. But it's how things are as we've rebelled against God. That's what this first, the second thief is saying. He's saying clearly, he's saying about himself and about this other guy. Because what he says next, he says, we have done this. We have deserved this. But this Jesus guy is different. This is our due reward, but it's not his. And then, as he says, this guy, is, Jesus, is different, he then talks to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, again, all this biblical language is a part of you that can just be like, Yep, that's the kind of things people say in the Bible. Really? Can you imagine being on a cross, looking at a guy on a cross and saying, My Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, affirming Christ's kingdom. Really? If you really thought Jesus was going to be bringing about a kingdom, do you think you would still think it when he's on a cross? 
what is this guy possibly saying? And if we look at the other accounts of this story, when the, we have four Gospels and they all talk about the crucifixion. And all the other ones, they do talk about these thieves. John doesn't. But the other two, Matthew and Mark, do. And in both of those stories, they talk about how the thieves, plural, are. Let's look. Mark 15, 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes are mocking Jesus to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Making the same point that I'm making, which is, on a cross, he's certainly not a king. Yet we have this thief calling him a king. How can he be a king? And then it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Matthew 27, it says, and the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. Is this then one of those contradictions you've been hearing about in the New Testament? No. No. There's a lot of time for Jesus on this crucifixion and this moment where he's going through. He's been arrested. He's been tried. And then he's now been beaten. And he's walking up and he's been crucified. In this process of his crucifixion, there's a lot of time for different stuff to happen. And I'm going to suggest that it does. If we don't start with the assumption that the gospel writers are just total idiots and they didn't check notes with each other before they wrote these stories and instead assume that they were all trying to cram an overwhelmingly large story into a finite amount of material, then we can see instead a redemption story. Because if I was being crucified... And there's no more pleas for mercy and there's no more acquittal process. I can see myself reviling anything and everything that moves. Yelling at anyone and everyone, spitefully. And so this thief did with the first. And yet, something happens in this period of execution. The intent of an execution through crucifixion was a lengthy process. Something happens in the period of this execution wherein this second thief changes his tone towards Jesus and instead says about him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. How? How do you go from agreeing with everybody else and reviling this Jesus on the cross to then deciding... That you deserve your death, and because of your sin, God's right in his judgment of you. You now fear God. You're going to stand up for Jesus and then ask him to remember you when he comes into his kingdom. Despite all logic. It's not like this guy understood. Well, he said he was going to get resurrected, and nobody else got it. Despite all logic, he said, I agree, and I believe. What was it that melted this guy's heart? Well, studying the four accounts, the only thing that I can really get to that Jesus said before his death, before he says this, you will be with me in paradise to this guy. He says different things from the cross, but the only thing that I can confirm that he said before this, after the crucifixion starts and before he says, truly you'll be in paradise, is one thing. He says in Luke 23 and verse 34, so you're in the same chapter, you just go up to verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. What's that saying? You may have heard this before. It's really, really famous that Jesus said this. But he's looking out and he's saying, and, and a lot of times when Jesus speaks, there's layers to it. There's like a 
present meaning, there's also a bigger meaning. But he's saying to the people around him, he's praying to God about the people around him, looking at the people who are scoffing and spitting and laughing and throwing rotten eggs at him, and looking down at the people whose job it was to execute him, and little fringe benefit payment it was to get the stuff of the people they executed. And he looks down from the cross and says, before both of these two thieves, who are both yelling and reviling anything and anything that moves, they look at Jesus, Jesus looking down at these people who are casting lots for his clothes, and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He lays an unrequited love down. Praying for a forget. He doesn't pray that God would deliver him from the cross. He prayed that in the garden. Lord, is there another way for this to happen? And when that wasn't the case, that this is the way it has to happen, he goes through with it to the very end. And as he's going through with it and enduring it, he is still thinking and loving and praying for you. This thief watches as Jesus feels this just unparalleled love. And it's that love that melts his heart. It's that love that changes everything for this thief. It goes from reviling Jesus to praising God and pleading with Jesus to be remembered. Now, that gets us back to the whole reason we're doing this text today. The point of this text is not that you just get bummed out about the crucifixion. The point of this text is for you to see that same love and respond to it in the same way. Most of the time when we come to Easter and we talk about the things we talk about on Easter, I make a hard case for the historicity, the historical reliability of the resurrection. And the reason why I do that? Because it really happened and there's a lot of great evidence for it. And because if it really happened, then you've got to answer some big questions about whether or not Christianity is true. And yet usually, and often I'm talking to a room of people, and when I start talking about, and another reason, and I'm giving just history, you can watch their eyes glaze over. It's what they were expecting. They came to church. But it all of a sudden has become a history lesson, and come on, man. Okay. Let's change it then. Instead of just talking about what you should know, research, understand, believe to be true because it is true, let's take a step back and say, why should you want it to be true? I don't know if you wanting it to be true means that it will be true. This isn't wishful thinking or wish fulfillment. No. But if you want it to be true, and if your heart's really been melted by it, then you'll have the incentive to do the work that it takes to really evaluate, is it true? This guy experiences this love from a cross. Understand that he too is on a cross. Jesus seeing him. And there's nothing for Jesus to love about this thief. In the whole of the world, there are fewer people, I think only one other person, less able to help Jesus in that moment than this thief. How impressive is he? He's naked condemned justly and being crucified for his sin. And in that state, Jesus loves him. 
Why? Of course he does. That's the whole point of the cross. He has that kind of love for you. If you will see that love and really experience that love, it'll melt your heart like nothing else will. You have to imagine that this guy has experienced all kinds of stuff in his life. He's probably experienced a ton of social shaming and it didn't change his behavior. He's probably experienced a ton of beatings and different like painful responses to his disobedience and it doesn't change his behavior. He's got all kinds of different preaching probably in his life and it hasn't changed his behavior. What finally gets to this hardened criminal is the love that God has for him and for you. Now, if that love is true and Easter, the resurrection is true, which it is, you've now got something that's going to get you through this. Not a 90-day deferment on Lexus payments. Something that's actually going to give you the hope that whether the COVID gets worse or gets better, whether you live long or live short, whether you live rich or live poor, when the time comes, when death comes, <laughs> you have a great hope. That there ain't no grave that's going to hold your body down. How good is that music? I'm so excited to put down the Trolls 2 soundtrack and pick up Valley Songs uh, version 2 or whatever. <laughs> that there is no grave that can hold your body down. And that's why Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This guy doesn't do any good works. He doesn't get baptized. He doesn't make some great financial contribution to Jesus in his ministry. He just says, I repent. You're God and I'm wrong. And that's enough for Jesus to proclaim. When they break your legs soon and you suffocate and die, you're going to be with me in paradise. Not finally you're going to get all this stuff that you wanted, but you're going to be with me in paradise. Because, again, that's the whole point of this. It's not just to experience this love. It's to experience this love from him, to turn your eyes up to him. So one of the other big passages on resurrection happens in 1 Corinthians 15, and he sings at the end of it, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death, sin. The power of sin, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he sing? Because death has lost its sting. If you really believe this, if you really know it, if it's really met you and it's really changed you, then death has lost its sting. If you have your eyes on him, death has lost its sting. I got a video yesterday little shared album of my sister-in-law with my niece. My niece is one. She was sitting on a couch. My sister-in-law said, May May, here comes the earthquake. And she starts slapping the cushions that May's sitting on and May's staring at Mama. And what does she do? Does she freak out? No. She laughs as hard as she can laugh. Her rotund belly was shaking in gales of laughter. Why? 
She had her eyes on her mother. She knew that everything was right with the world. With her one-year-old apprehension of things, she had an absolute certainty that everything's fine. The couch is shaking, but everything's fine. We have a story in Scripture of the um, Apostle Peter in a storm, getting out of a boat and walking on water. How does he do it? Because he's got his eyes on Jesus. And when he takes them off, if you know the story, he falls. And Jesus picks him up. But he had his eyes on Jesus. If you understand this love, if you have your eyes on Jesus, then you can walk with confidence through this issue and so many more. Until you come to the issue, and because of the forgiveness of Christ, walk through it with all the glory of resurrection, all the glory of Easter. Do you know that? I'm not making some charlatan's emotional plea here. I'm just asking. Do you know it? If you felt it, maybe it'll incite for you. Maybe it'll start the ball rolling for you. A series of questions and answers where we can look through and say, did Jesus really raise from the dead? Did he really say the things that he said? Did he really live this sublime life? If so, everything's different. To really see him and really put your eyes on him. Not use him to try and get off the crosses of your life and just get back to whatever you want to do, but to really be with him. That's paradise. Hope Church exists to help you on that pursuit. However we can, whenever we can, for whatever length you can allow us to. Our job is to just answer those questions. To try and model it out and to show you what that love looks like when it changes really broken, awful people. If you'll allow us, my my prayer is that you just contact us in some way. Stay with us on YouTube Live till we can gather back together. And pray with me right now. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask in this moment that you would make Easter miracles happen. It's unlikely, it's nobody's plan A that we would be doing this digitally like this. And yet, we are. You knew it would happen, Father, and you chose to allow it. And here we are. And your gospel is every bit as powerful, and our preaching is every bit as foolish. And we just pray that you would use it in some way, that you would take your words and you would not have them return void, but that you would have the maybe harsh environment of the crucifixion and the glorious mystery of the resurrection penetrate the hearts of those that listen to push back the darkness and bring about that dawn of victory. Teach us to put our eyes on you, Lord, and to walk through this. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.